that, but okay, okay whatever. But uh, uh, just take into account that it's on the record. <laughs> yes, it's all on. Okay. Uh, okay. Um, welcome. Welcome back to um, our second part uh, of today's today's events event, which is about national and European immigration policy challenges. So it's, uh, I guess, the policy panel that uh, tries it, tries to wrap it all up and you know come up with a few sensible uh, policy conclusions that uh, we would recommend to to policymakers both at the national and at the European level. And this is actually a very timely report, um, and we've long planned to to have it out actually exactly today, because uh, tomorrow um, there is um, the European Council, and uh, one of the big topics on the European Council beyond um, Brexit um, and um, EMU reform is migration migration management. And uh, you may have seen that um, the note that the president of the European Council has just... Uh, uh, issued yesterday, I think, um, uh, gave a lot of um, political um, controversy, gave rise to a lot of political controversy. One of the points he was making, and that concerns very much European Union migration management, was the question of, you know, how do you distribute um, refugees um, across the European Union? As you know, there has been a decision taken by uh, the Council uh, to distribute refugees uh, across different EU countries in a, with a certain quota, but that was never really implemented and it was very heavily resisted by uh, a number of member states. And the European Council president, therefore, um, I think stated in a sense the obvious, but that was very controversial, uh, where he said, and I quote, um, uh, the issue of mandatory quotas has proven to be highly divisive and the approach has received disproportionate attention in light of its impact on the ground. In this sense, it has turned out to be ineffective. And so I think one of the, so that's the end of the quote. So I think one of the the, the big debates at this European Council will certainly be around around uh, around this issue. So how do you how do you deal with the migrants that arrive here? How do you distribute them? Can you actually distribute them? I mean, perhaps it's actually something that is, you know, nice on paper but factually impossible, um, um, and so on and so forth. Now, that's just one one topic. Um, Rainer already talked, and the previous panel talked already about a number of. Of, of other um, aspects regarding um, uh, the management, uh, the arrival, the integration then of migrants, um, <clears throat> and of course also the issue of, um, uh, you know, how do you distinguish between um, refugees um, and how do you distinguish between refugees on the one hand and economic migrants on the other hand. Uh, if you identify that someone is not worthwhile of being a refugee because he doesn't come from from a place that uh, deserves such a status, how can you actually ensure that that the respective person um, 
uh, eventually will go back uh, to, to his country of origin. Can you actually do that? Um, what would be the right policy at the European level? And what would be the right level policy at the national level? There again, I think um, the council president um, in, his, in his document sort of makes, a, I guess, a general statement that is always true in the European Union. Uh, it works the best when EU-level institutions and uh, uh, mechanisms work together with the national-level institutions. But how exactly that should happen, I think, is, 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 um, is, is a topic we could also usefully debate in that panel. Now, I'm very pleased to have uh, three, three excellent uh, panelists today uh, with us. Um, first, um, and I go, go here in, in reverse order. Um, so first, uh, Matthias Oehl. Um, Matthias Oehl is the Director for Migration, Mobility and Innovation in the European Commission, um, DG Home. Thank you very much for coming, and uh, uh, I will give you the floor first. Um, following Matthias, um, we have uh, Manu uh, Bardwai, uh, Vice President for Research and Insights of the uh, Mastercard Center for Inclusive Growth. And let me mention again uh, my gratitude to the Mastercard Center for Inclusive Growth for uh, supporting and, and funding this research piece. Um, and uh, last but not least, Elizabeth uh, Collett, um, Director of the Migration Policy Institute in Europe will um, stimulate the debate and then I, I hope that after each initial intervention of let's say no more than uh, can I say 10 minutes maximum um, we would um, have a debate among ourselves but also with you in the audience. So without much further ado, Matthias. Yes, thank you very much uh, and good afternoon um, everybody. I would first start with some general remarks on the challenges and then give you a kind of telegraphic overview where we stand on the on the different uh, challenges. First general remark, and I think we can easily agree on that, uh, migration toward the European Union is and will remain in the foreseeable future one of the biggest political challenges not only for the EU but in addition for the member states and also for the regional and uh, local level and populist movements in several member states and election results have shown that uh, dramatically in the um, past two years. And in particular, when I talk about the local level, integration is, of course, an important element here. The second general remark is that the discussion on migration um, does not only concern asylum and refugee policy and legal migration policy, it goes far beyond that. Um, it concerns uh, the stability of the Schengen area as such. And let me say that uh, 30 years ago, uh, the subsidiarity question has been answered. Because in a space like Schengen, Schengen, where you don't have internal borders anymore, it doesn't make sense to have any cross-border effective law on the purely national level. Since migration and asylum are cross-border, since we don't have internal borders anymore, uh, per definition, um, the migration asylum law has to be issued on the European level. And that's, and it has uh, been demonstrated in 2015, the Schengen area as such is at stake. And the second point, why it's more than simply refugee and asylum pol um, policy, um, it concerns the entire debate of solidarity and responsibility, which you were referring to, which is tomorrow again in the European uh, Council. And in this context, the overall question, 
where do we move in the area of justice and home affairs? Do we go further to political integration or will we end up uh, somewhere um, else? And the third political remark, uh, the third general remark I would like to make is that over the last three years, we probably have made more progress developing the uh, justice and home affairs area than we did in the 20 years before. I think all the discussions we have on the distribution key and that there is a block, political blockage in the European Council should not overshadow what we um, have reached in the last three years on the European level. And that brings me to my second part, um, which is now a kind of telegraphic overview on the challenges uh, we have to work on. And here I see seven key points. Uh, and the most important thing is here that all the seven key points we have to work on and we have to tackle in parallel. It's very often that from, from a certain political perspective you don't like the one or the other and the other political direction doesn't like the other ones. Uh, but we have to tackle them all seven if we want to cope with the migration crisis. And the seven points are, first, a fair distribution of refugees among the member states and the continued development of the common European asylum system. Second challenge, sustainable integration. Third challenge, better management of migration by opening more legal possibilities for migration to Europe. Fourth challenge, systematic securing of the external borders. Fifth challenge, stricter procedures for the return of rejected asylum seekers and irregular migrants. Sixth challenge, the complete restoration of freedom of movement within the Schengen area. And the seventh challenge is measures in Africa and the Near East, and the Near East for tackling the root causes of migration. So these are the seven challenges. Once again, we have to work on them en bloc, not depending on our political um, preferences. And I will now quickly uh, go through uh, the seven points in order to uh, tell you where we are. First, common European asylum system and fair distribution. We have seen, and I think there's also agreement that uh, in 2000 system, the current Dublin system, in 2015, the current Dublin system um, did not work in view of the many people uh, who arrived in the European Union. And therefore, we must make significant progress to reforming, to, to reforming um, the Dublin um, system. And let me also say, and that is a personal concern I have, we are currently in a certain period of stability. We have more than 90% less influx via the Aegean Sea. We have even in the central Mediterranean more than 30% less influx. Um, but negotiations on the distribution key are stuck on the highest political level. So we really hope that progress can be soon made. The Commission view is clear, and that is reflected in our proposal. Uh, the, we need a reformed system with reliable and binding rules, and the system should be based on effective solidarity. Every member state should participate, also with regard to the distribution of refugees. And furthermore, we also need to make progress with regard to all the other proposals to reform the common European asylum system in particular with regard to asylum procedures, but also with regard um, to 
minimum standards. And this also includes that we need to um, strengthen uh, the European Asylum Support Office and make it to a proper agency. Second challenge, sustainable integration. Integration does not take place in Brussels. Integration takes place um, on uh, the European um, level. And I also already mentioned in the beginning, this is one of the biggest challenges for our um, society. The Commission doesn't have legislative competences, but we have money where we can support the region and local level, and we can organize and provide fora for member states to um, exchange practices. And I think this is very important because um, we have one particular challenge here, and that is the experience gap between member states. We have member states who have a long-lasting experience and build up capacities and infrastructure to integrate foreigners, third country nationals. But we have at the same time, in particular in Eastern Europe, member states who hardly have any experience. So we have to do a lot, in particular in view of a political compromise on a distribution key, to bring all member states on a level playing field. And uh, for example, twinning uh, between experienced and non-experienced member states could be a possibility here. The Commission provided an action plan on integration of third country nationals, which, lasts, which, which uh, goes from pre-departure measures, pre-rival measures, education, vocational training, access to basic services, social inclusion. So it's a very comprehensive document and we are currently implementing it. Um, and finally, I think we should not only look towards integration as a challenge, but we should also look at it uh, as the possibility to use the in innovations uh, which, can, which migration flows can provide. Third point, better management of migration through opening more avenues for legal migration to Europe. Everybody is aware of the demographic situation in um, many uh, European countries, um, so that we need integration into the labor markets in the upcoming years. At the same time, uh, there must also be more legal avenues for people seeking protection in order to avoid that they have to put themselves into the hand of uh, smugglers. And for this aspect, resettlement is and should be the preferred method um, we should use. The Commission has called on the member states to resettle at least 50,000 people. That was following a request from uh, the UNHCR in need of international protection by the end of October 2019. Uh, I can tell you that member states have, as of today, already pledged almost 40,000 places, so 40,000 of the 50,000 places, so that we can be pretty sure that this ambitious figure will be reached. Commission is providing to member states for this resettlement exercise 500 million euros, which equals 10,000 euros per resettled um, refugee. In our communication on the deliverables of the um, European migration agenda, the Commission has also encouraged member states to set up private sponsorship schemes, like they exist, for example, um, in Canada. And we are currently in the area of legal migration developing pilot projects with third countries in order to enable circular or temporary migration um, into member states. Uh, the interest of member states is much uh, more positive and much better than we originally had expected. So really hope that this uh, temporary migration, legal migration pilot projects can contribute 
to open more legal avenues to Europe and, and that's the other side of the medal, help member states who have demographic problems um, to make um, to, um, to profit from that. Fourth point, securing the external um, borders. It's very clear that we must restore confidence in the management of the external borders in order also to have the political readiness to um, ensure totally free movement within um, the Schengen area. Border management is probably the area where we made most of the progress in the last uh, two years. I only give you three examples. Um, we have made Frontex a real European border and Coast Guard agencies which with uh, enhanced uh, remits and resources. Uh, a new entry-exit system, an IT-based system for our external borders has just entered into force and should become operational in 2020. We are building up, if you think about the American ESTA system for visa-free travelers, um, a European travel information authorization system where you in future have to at least register via internet. This is currently in the trilogues between Council and Parliament. And yesterday the Commission adopted an interoperability proposal which in future will make the different IT systems we have, Visa, Eurodac, Schengen, etc., uh, more interoperable. Fifth point, consistent return of rejected asylum seekers and irregular migrants. I say it in purely objective terms, not being naive on how difficult return is sometimes to establish on the local level. But the fact that in 2016, across Europe, fewer than 50% of all irregular migrants who could have been returned, were returned factually, is objectively probably the biggest pull factor we have for refugees towards the European Union. And that's why uh, we also have to, to tackle um, this problem. There are very different degrees of readiness to return migrants in the individual member states. And secondly, we have also an unwillingness of third countries to take back their nationals. While it's of course up to each member state to um, implement and organize return. Um, we as commission have to do our homework with regard to third countries. So we are in extremely intensive um, negotiations and cooperation with Pakistan, Afghanistan, Bangladesh, Morocco, and the countries of sub-Saharan Africa in order to ensure that they take their nationals um, also um, back, readmission agreements. Uh, and we are focusing on these countries because these are the nationalities of migrants who mostly irregularly come to Greece um, and um, Italy. And I think a, an effective return policy is also necessary in order to um, restore confidence in the proper functioning of the EU migration management. And to be very clear at the end of this point, strict humanitarian standards must be set for every individual return. That is very clear. And the other side of the coin of return is the duration and length of procedures. Uh, you cannot expect if you have procedures of two or three years that then uh, it is acceptable to return um, a migrant. He is then already integrated, the family is integrated on the local level. So we have to ensure fast procedures in order to be able to increase the return rate. Sixth and second last point, re-establishing free movement uh, within the Schengen area. I already said this is of course linked to the external border management I was talking about. 
um, the temporary reintroduction of internal border controls must, from the perspective of the Commission, remain an absolute exceptional um, measures, um, measure. And um, we hope that uh, in, the, in the upcoming month we therefore can restore free movement. Last but not least, uh, the seventh point, we need to address the root causes in the countries um, of origin and in, the, in our neighboring countries. The logic is very simple. If we do not manage to make Africa and the Near East, uh, and, and the Near East a regions where not millions of people want to leave for social, economic, and humanitarian reasons, we will have a refugee problem in Europe. That is absolutely clear. Uh, and it's also absolutely clear that from the seventh points I mentioned, this is probably the most complex uh, challenge uh, we are having. It is an intergenerational uh, task, but we need uh, to tackle it. The EU has always been very active in this, in this field. Uh, the EU and its member states are among the largest providers of development assistance. But development is sustainable only if the governance structures in developing countries are also involving in the right direction. And also here uh, we have to support. And let me also say, all in all, we need not just to reshape our development policy, we need an integrated approach also covering other policy fields uh, like um, agriculture and many other policy um, areas. The Commission is following in the, under the Juncker Commission this integrated approach. Whenever we talk about, for example, the legal migration projects, all the DGs who are concerned are invited. But the complexity of the problem, you can also see that um, the integrated approach must also be followed on the national level because otherwise any European concepts will not be carried um, by um, the member states. I will stop here. I hope that I was not far beyond the, the 10 minutes. These are the seven um, key challenges. I hope I demonstrated that a lot of progress has been made over the last two years, but uh, I also wanted to demonstrate that a lot still has to be done. Thank you very much. Well, thank you very much, uh, Matthias. Um, you are slightly above 10 minutes, but uh, I think uh, given the wide area of topics that you covered, I mean, that, that was certainly very useful to, to spend the time and, you know, see, see all the various dimensions of the integrated policies um, that um, the European Commission tries to implement. I'm sure there will be lots of things we can discuss um, on each of the seven points, and I certainly have noted down a number of points where you know, I would have to have questions and would have disagreements also. But before I start doing that, let me, let me give the floor to the other panelists, uh, to, to Manu. Thanks, Kuntram. It's wonderful to be here with uh, Bruegel today. Um, I thought I would just start by remarking on you know, over the last four years, I've had the opportunity to visit three different refugee settlement areas, uh, one in Kenya, one in Somalia, and one in Italy. Um, and I just think it's uh, interesting just to recount a little bit about those experiences. Most recently in Somalia, I had the opportunity to meet a group of high school students uh, who are all, of course, teenagers, all of whom had lived their whole life in that settlement area. 
they were lucky that they uh, had uh, a good uh, schooling, good education all in the settlement uh, area. And uh, they were all extremely articulate, very passionate about their future, their hopes for the future, their hope to get uh, schooling, hope to secure a job. Um, and one person in particular, I remember a young woman saying she wanted to be a physician. I can guarantee you she had never stepped into a hospital before. <laughs> um, but uh, her ambition was there, and she had access to the internet, uh, and which opened up a whole portal of opportunities uh, for her and for others. Um, I think what we're, what we're, why we're here today is we're trying to multiply the hopes of that young woman who wanted to be a physician 65 million times over, right? Uh, we're trying to understand how to uh, pay proper tribute uh, and enable a population of people um, that um, are hungry for you know, change, hungry for growth, looking for opportunities, and yet are, fa are facing the most uh, dire circumstances uh, in, in some cases, uh, imaginable, and often at a very young age, all of these settlement areas, it was striking just how many young people were there. And uh, almost all of them were majority female. Um, I think, um, you know, we do now have an opportunity, I think, with a sustainable development agenda, I wanted to mention. Um, the 2030 sustainable development agenda, a global agenda that was led by Europe, the United States, a number of developed countries and developing countries. We have political buy-in at the head of state level. Uh, if you think about what those goals are, okay, goal one, ending poverty as we know it. Goal two, ending hunger. Goal three, ensuring healthy lives and well-being in all ages. Goal four, quality education. Uh, goal, one of the goals is gender equality, of course. Sustained inclusive economic growth. The sustainable development agenda is not going to be achieved if we don't address the refugee crisis. So there is a global commitment now to try to achieve these goals, this agenda, but it's quite clear to me that if you view it from the lens of the refugee crisis, there's absolutely no way we can expect to make any progress by 2030 if we don't focus very concretely on what are some of the private sector government solutions uh, that we can deploy together in partnership to improve the lives of people in these settlement areas. Um, you know, we do have uh, these, this view of refugees as transitory. I think it's like a, a stereotype, right? Uh, and my experience was that, you know, many cases, and I think UNHCR and CNN and many people have reported on this, uh, people are staying at these settlement areas for decades. Uh, and so they're not necessarily always people on the move. They're just people that are there. Uh, and they are looking to be, uh, you know, economically integrated uh, in Europe, potentially, or in other areas. And they're looking for opportunities where they can find them. Um, what, what, what was really encouraging about the research that we saw from Bruegel was the focus on financial inclusion. So why does financial inclusion matter? Um, so when we say financial inclusion, we're talking about access to a bank account, the ability to get a job, the ability to you know, just basically enter a society and be economically integrated in that society. One of the challenges that uh, migrants do face, uh, not just in Europe, but globally, are regulations that say, you know, know your customer, right? So basically, you have to have an ID, you have to have some form of residence, you have to have basic uh, information that oftentimes migrants and refugees, just by their nature, do not have. Uh, and uh, this is an important issue for us to really uh, grapple with, and it's an important issue, I think, that the EU could lead on uh, for the world in thinking about, you know, what are some ways uh, that we could potentially 
uh, think about helping refugees become more integrated in the financial system. And uh, what was interesting about the research was, were some of the ideas that I had never heard of before, but I thought were very uh, ambitious and should be considered. The creation of a pan-European registry of refugees to which financial institutions have access. So a, a registry of some sort that maybe financial institutions have digital access of migrants and refugees, some way to supplement uh, information when the basic ID, which they never have, often is the case, at least a legal ID. They may have a functional one, but not a legal one that's recognized. Um, the other ideas are a European ID for each refugee to help facilitate identification. Or even what's interesting is that European countries are adopting a lot of the, the regulations with respect to the anti-money laundering statute in different ways. Uh, so more so, sort of regulatory kind of um, consistency in how uh, supervisory authorities are viewing this issue. Uh, so there's just a consistent approach across the board. Um, at the Center for Inclusive Growth, uh, we are an independent subsidiary of MasterCard, um, and, and uh, we really are focused on trying to fund research and programs that are furthering uh, inclusive growth, uh, combating income inequality, uh, trying to spread the benefits of technology and other benefits to vulnerable populations. Um, it's a, a global role where we fund. Uh, we've identified this issue in particular as an issue that we're really concerned about. It's a global one that is impacting the world, and we have a theory of change. And our theory of change is uh, something that says, you know, as, as smart as all of us are in this room, and brilliant as we are, we actually got here for a particular reason. We were privileged in the sense that we had access to education, we had access to infrastructure, we had access to mentors, to networks, to people that could help us and pick us up in our life. So there's nothing innately brilliant about me or about anyone else in this room as much as it was a society and networks in a society that helped pick us up. And so the theory of change is to really recognize this reality and try to at least create a baseline of support uh, for everyone, uh, especially vulnerable populations that don't don't have that at all, uh, those networks that they need, and especially the ones that they need at a very young age. Um, you know, MasterCard has done quite a lot on the humanitarian front. We are so impressed with what European governments are doing in settlement areas, with what UNHCR is doing. Uh, we we really feel that technology is a part of the solution in terms of thinking about public-private partnerships and thinking about digital IDs and really trying to find um, partnerships with the private sector where it's, yes, of course, the private sector is always willing to be philanthropic in terms of you know, donating money, giving resources, but also you can leverage the technology uh, capabilities of the private sector, uh, bringing them in quicker. Um, if the sustainable development agenda, you know, for us to achieve it, they say we need to be spending $2 trillion a year to achieve those goals. Uh, for that to actually happen, I don't think the private sector can necessarily be on the sidelines. Uh, we have to probably think about ways that we're working together in uh, a more simple way to try to really push push the envelope in terms of what we can do in some of these regions in the, of the world. Um, so I just I'm I'm really uh, glad to be here with you. I'm looking forward to the discussion. Um, but I think the, the the research that Bruegel presented was a good was a very good start, and I think it would be great to see more kind of concrete action, not only just in financial inclusion, but in all different aspects, uh, and a more holistic view of how we can improve the lives of migrants and refugees, because I think what is done here in Europe could be a model for the world. Thank you very much, Manu. And last but not least, um Thank you very much, uh, first for the invitation to be here and second for giving me a grace period for writing um, some notes. Um, I had 
prepared something on labor market integration, which I will come back to, but I will make some more general remarks um, on, on where we are now and how we got here and some of the things we might need to think about in the future when it comes to European migration, asylum and integration policy. Um, for many people, the discussion around crisis around the last few years, um, the events of the last few years have thrown up new problems to be solved. And that's very much the approach that, 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 that a lot of people are taking to this. They are not new problems. These are pre-existing problems exacerbated by fluctuations in flow, um, the increased political salience and, dare I say, a panic, um, and the inability to find collective solutions in a timely manner. Um, these are old challenges. I'm struck that I think of the seven points Matthias outlined, six of those we would have been discussing in 2014 and earlier, but with a much smaller audience. So the crisis has, has done some things in terms of increasing awareness of some of these challenges and perhaps impetus to resolve them. But the challenges themselves are not, not particularly new. Um, what has really shifted and made it harder in many, many regards is that the public narrative and our own perceptions of how these problems are characterized have changed enormously, very much more polarized. In 2015, we found ourselves having a conversation about open versus closed borders, as if either one of those things were a realistic possibility within Europe. The idea of in versus out, legitimate versus not legitimate, but particularly the open versus closed borders along the Western Balkans route really confused everyone. They felt like they needed to pick a side. Are we allowing everyone to come through or are we preventing everyone to come through? When most people who work on migration issues know that neither one of those outcomes has ever been part and parcel of talking about migration management. We talk about managed borders. We talk about how we think about identification at the border and filtering. We were very much challenged by that public narrative that I think then forced a lot of political solutions onto a table that didn't necessarily need to be there. Um, and I think this is where we are now in, in, in what is now described. The question I get asked most often by journalists is, is the crisis over? Are we done now? Um, and that has an enormous amount to do with how you define crisis, uh, which I've been thinking about a lot. Um, within the context of asylum reform, crisis has been broken down to numbers, capacities. Can we say we've reached a crisis level upon which new policies and, and new mechanisms will be, will be initiated because numbers of, numbers of asylum seekers have gone beyond a certain point or beyond a certain capacity in terms of reception. Um, it's been broken down into very dry terms of what that means to be a crisis that, that, that reaches very specific benchmarks. Um, for others, the concept of crisis is disputed. These are uh, obligations that Europe has taken on due to international law to protect refugees. Therefore, to talk about this as crisis negates that obligation to a certain extent. It's been hugely disputed by a number of different actors. But I think one of the challenges here is that crisis is mostly about perception and context. And where we are now, which we could arguably say is a calmer environment, a post-crisis environment, our perception of the next crisis, the threshold for that crisis, has lowered dramatically from where it was in 2014. The same migration dynamics that we might have seen in 2013 or 2014 could very easily create a perception of crisis in a way they didn't three years ago. 
And that creates a challenge then for political leaders. They have to demonstrate a greater responsiveness to this issue than they might have done three or four years ago um, in a context where solidarity is harder to find because it's so much in the public eye. So I just wanted to outline that as the context and then perhaps some of the challenges we face going forward. I think some of the challenges with the EU response thus far has been that they have been about tweaking the existing approach to the common European asylum system, reforming laws around the edges, and escalating existing approaches. And I think particularly with migration partnerships, there's nothing particularly new about migration partnerships, but the political weight put behind them and the actors involved in them and the money put behind them has escalated significantly. So these are not necessarily new overhauls of migration policy, but rather trying to adapt and escalate them. So there are no fundamental rethinks on the table. Um, and I think that may be why, in many areas, we've reached a deadlock, both politically and technically. So some of the questions perhaps we should be asking is, what would a redesigned Schengen look like, building in the lessons we've learned over the last 30 years? I actually asked a couple of policymakers here who were involved in the initial drafting of Schengen, what would you do differently knowing now what you didn't know then? So if we took a blank sheet of paper and redesigned Schengen, would it be drastically different? What would the checks and balances be? And could we work from that basis as opposed to trying to retrofit um, tweaks to a Schengen system that's clearly not working for a number of states? What would a complete common European asylum system look like? Are we inevitably moving towards a context where there is an EU agency that takes the first pass at identifying and triaging asylum claims and deciding who should go into the asylum system and who should be returned. Several European leaders have talked about that in very vague terms. Should we really be taking that concept seriously and taking it forward? Or are we, uh, again, in a cycle of Dublin reform and trying to find solidarity on, on responsibility sharing? I think one of the critical issues are what are the benchmarks for success for some of the policies uh, we've, put, we've put forward? Um, in the context of migration partnerships and partnerships with non-European countries, an enormous amount of money has been repurposed. Not all of it new, but it may have been repurposed or rebranded um, within the migration partnership context. But very few benchmarks for success have been articulated aside from monitoring flows into the European Union, flows through key transit states, and numbers of returns. These are very blunt benchmarks for a large amount of money to be spent. Um, and they are also two factors that can be driven far more by exogenous events beyond the EU's control than necessarily funding. So while I think it's extremely important that the EU is investing in these partnerships and spending this money, we do need to come up with some more sophisticated understanding about what success would look like with these partnerships, taking into account the needs of some of those countries as well as the priorities for the European Union. And I think within that, really understanding a little better about the exogenous events around the world in a very volatile European neighborhood and beyond the European neighborhood that we're not currently taking into account. We are still in the reactive mode. We're still looking at those countries that have been problematic in the past and not necessarily looking closely enough at the countries that might be problematic five years out. Um, are we taking a forward-looking approach to working with countries that may be deeply unstable or fragile and need that kind of support, particularly support when it comes to refugee hosting, that allows them to manage those populations 
and give those populations livelihoods, as I think was being discussed earlier, rather than staying in um, a crisis mode. Uh, well, today is the European summit, so I just wanted to point out that uh, you mentioned the relocation spat, which is an overblown argument that both misses the point and is something of a sideshow. Um, there's nothing like institutions having a spat about something that's not important when they're not quite sure what they should be saying, in my view. Um, I think the real goals of the meeting should be improving funding for migration um, and really thinking of getting member states on board with the idea that we need to be spending more money on this and more carefully spending money on this. Talking about Schengen and trying to find some political consensus on, on Schengen and how important EU member states think Schengen is because from that flows the common European asylum system. I think Matthias is exactly right. Um, and perhaps putting some urgency into the timeline challenge. We've seen the leaders agenda set out a goal of, of trying to achieve political reform by June of next year. The commission has also put on the table the idea of achieving uh, asylum reform by June of next year. These are not um, dates plucked out of the sky. If these changes aren't really likely to come about before June next year, we are now talking about reform under the next commission term, really. Not much will get done in the second half of 2018 or 2019. So there is pressure to do things now in a context where we have a German government that may struggle to take its usual leadership role on these issues. We have an Italian election now set for March 4th, and so reluctance to commit to anything before that date. Um, and a number of, of, of Central European states who are emboldened, I think, by this, by, by this situation and playing it for domestic political uh, points, which will, I think, make it extremely difficult to push to some kind of political momentum in the future. Um, that doesn't mean that all is lost. I think there are some things we should be thinking about in the future. I've mentioned funding and resource flexibility. These are, funding is always the, the, the less political. When you're not beyond the envelopes, it gets less political and more technical. One of the big challenges of the crisis was getting the money to the right place at the right time and the resources to the right place at the right time when certain countries were under particular pressure. Um, there's been a lot of thinking, I know, within the European Commission. There's been a lot of thinking outside the European Commission, including ourselves, about, about what that might look like to rethink the way the EU can support member states and particularly at the local level to um, get from get better implementation of many of these policies and many of these amb ambitions and support member states, particularly at moments where they may be under pressure. I think a second area to really think about is crisis resilience, um, or rather resilience to fluctuation in flow, which will become a new normal. I think we should expect uh, particular surges in, in flows of irregular migrants at different points, some of them will be expected and predictable, some of them will not, particularly if we don't improve our foresight on that. I think there's, there's ample room to improve that. But starting to think about crisis resilience, who is responsible at a moment of crisis? Who gives the orders? Who takes the lead? Um, in, terms, in crisis management terms, I think that was a significant challenge of the last three years. Huge number of initiatives put in place to improve coordination, improve information flow, huge steps forward for the European Union in the last couple of years, but still that chain of command issue remains problematic. Who is in the lead in a context where this is a deeply sensitive sovereign area? So how, how do we square that circle um, from, from, from the EU perspective? I think an underserved and underconsidered issue 
is going to be a growing population of third country nationals and to some extent EU citizens in precarious situations. Um, we are seeing people go through asylum procedures, not all of whom will be successful, but not all of whom will be returned home for one reason or another. Um, these people will find themselves in, uh, in limbo in terms of their legal status, with limited access to public services, limited access to work. Um, we are going to have to be more proactive in thinking about what, what that means for that population if we don't want to think, have uh, systemic exclusion in cities and communities, including homelessness and, and extreme poverty. And that is part of a broader continuum for those people who find themselves without legal status and in a precarious situation, right through to those people who may have legal status but may be shut out of the formal labour market for one reason or another, um, finding themselves predominantly in unstable and precarious working situations. How do we think about that in the long term? I think it speaks to a lot of what you were saying about financial inclusion. And, and finally, I think the, the, the core thrust of the report that was put forward by Bruegel started to make me feel old. And I don't like things that make me feel old. Um, the ideas around integration for us have not changed that much in the last decade. The toolbox, the way we think about success and failure and integration, whether you have a job, whether you don't have a job. Um, the toolbox that's often used in terms of improving access to, to the labour market is often very static and very backwards looking based on experience in the past rather than what we might think is needed in the future. Um, one of the things we've been working at on at NPR Europe is we've put together an integration futures working group, which always sounds very bombastic, with the idea of trying to think through what our societies are going to look like in 2025 and work backwards from there, 2025, 2030. Think about the changing nature of employment both from the perspective of automatization and robotics, but also increasing precariousness within the gig economy, the expanding use of, 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 of short-term uh, and less formal labor uh, contracting. Try to think through a lot of the issues that are associated with skills. Are we using integration policies to skill new arrivals for the jobs that exist today, or are we thinking about the jobs that will exist in 10 years' time? Those jobs may be very different. So we may be putting people through long adult education programs that aren't actually that useful for them in the, in the long run. Should we be thinking about teaching skills like lifelong learning and resilience rather than specific skills that might become defunct? These are questions that are being amply discussed in the world of employment and not discussed enough in the world of integration. And we'd really like to bring some of these conversations together, both in terms of future education, future employment, how do we rethink this? And I think the private sector here plays an enormous role in how to rethink that, because the private sector doesn't necessarily look at skills recognition in the same way as governments do. They look at competence. Can I use this skill? Can I use this competence? Does this person present the potential I need? Um, and think through how they would invest in skilling and programming for refugees. We're, we're working with a number of private sector companies to help them design policies for refugee inclusion. They have the know-how when it comes to the labor market part. All they really want to understand is better understand the refugee communities they would be reaching out to and how best to reach out to them. So it's, a, it's more of a plug-in. I think there are loads of things we can do and think about 
um, in the integration sector. And I should say this um, and, and give credit to, to, to Matthias and his team because I think an enormous amount of work has already been done in the Commission to try and bring these different portfolios together. Um, it's not necessarily happening at the national level. There is a need for this to be happening uh, across, the, uh, across the European Union at national level as well as EU level. And really think through, if we have these diverse populations and they're here to stay, then maybe it's not a question of standalone integration policies, but rather a question of rethinking the very established systems we have from public employment agencies through to how we teach in schools and rethink them for diverse societies, diverse, di diversity-proof them, mobility-proof them, but really rethink how we provide public services for diverse populations rather than trying to do the reverse and assume that immigrants are integrating into perfect, cohesive societies. We have increasingly fragmented societies. Perhaps we should acknowledge that and work with those various fragmentations rather than just thinking through um, a very seamless process of integration. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, uh, Elizabeth. Um, and uh, I note that we have um, only 17 minutes left, so uh, so we were all sort of a little bit longer than than I originally foresaw. Let me let me open for questions, comments, remarks um, uh, to the audience, um, and please also always identify yourself. Um, well, I see that I have to break the ice, um, so. <laughs> Uh, let me let me push you on on two points. I mean, one is um, I mean, there's a lot of things that have been said, and we can talk about of many, on many aspects. And Elizabeth, I like very much your point actually on on the integration and you know what kind of skills do we actually think we need to teach uh, immigrants for the labor market? Indeed, uh, if that is backward looking uh, at this stage. Um, you know, then we have have of course a problem. So, so I think that was a very good point. Let, let me let me sort of push you on on two points. You and and also Matthias. One one is the the funding issue. Um, so both of you sort of <clears throat> were sort of giving the message. Well, there needs to be somehow EU funding, but both of you were not very clear what what exactly should the EU funding be for, and what is the justification to fund it through EU mechanisms and not through national national mechanisms. I mean, uh, uh, what, what specific areas um, deserve EU funding um, in, a, in a context where um, the labor markets, um, I guess, are somewhat segmented, where um, the asylum system um, is basically still, to a large extent, um, uh, and Joel showed the numbers, um, you know, uh, for having very different national uh, features in terms of acceptance rates of, of asylum applicants and so on. So, so perhaps you can sort of bring in a little bit more, be, be a little bit more precise. What is the exact EU, EU level that should be, and where should, I mean, for what and how much should the EU level really be funding, uh, funding this topic? Now, the second point I want to push you on is... Um, is this whole discussion on on Schengen uh, Schengen and the asylum system? I mean, so, so, so I guess my first comment is that the founders of Schengen, um, of course, knew very well that they were reckless. I mean, uh, and I think that has been. I mean, key people that were involved at the time have been on the record. 
admitting that they have been reckless. So they introduced the system without internal border control, knowing that they had not established proper external border controls, that they had not established a joint system where um, we would be able to record who's actually arriving and you know, know that everybody knew who is arriving in, in the Schengen, and so on and so forth. So, so yes, we are doing some repair, repair work there. Um, that repair work is overdue. Um, perhaps, perhaps I can push Matthias here and and tell me a little bit more about you know how much have we achieved and how much further do we need to go here really? Um, and I think really with respect to I guess immigrants coming from the outside because Schengen has of course a lot of internal dimensions also about security cooperation across uh, across jurisdictions that still is imperfect. Right, and so that arguably is is a problem for Schengen, and that that is one of the reasons why, you know, if I fly from Brussels Airport to uh, to Lyon, um, I actually face a border control, right? A border control when I arrive in Lyon. I mean, that that has relatively little with, to do with the asylum dimension, and and probably much more with the security dimension. But perhaps we can focus here more on the asylum dimension, and if Matthias could enlarge us a little bit more on. Uh, enlighten us a little bit more on you know what has really happened um, in improving <coughs> um, the the Schengen system so that you know basically uh, we can we can move to the next stage and uh, you know come back to to open open up the internal borders fully again because that of course is a desirable uh, goal of 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 um, European integration so so I guess again two points one on the funding what is really European what is national how should we think of differentiating between the two um, and the other one you know how how, how far have we gone with with Schengen uh, and repairing what is actually missing in Schengen perhaps Matthias do you want to to start that was a rhetoric question <laughs> <laughs> um, thank you Thank you very much. Um, on funding, and I already had taken note uh, when, when, when Liz was, was talking about it, um, you all know that the Commission will come up with its proposals uh, on the next multi-annual financial framework in May, in May next year. And currently, there is a broad and horizontal discussion within the Commission on all the different uh, policy fields um, in this respect. And I would just mention four very important points, and some of them uh, Liz already mentioned, but I think it's important uh, to, to really underline that. Um, the first point is that we need to think about, in several areas, we need to think about the funding architecture. Um, if I tell you that, uh, for example, in the area of integration, you can receive funding out of 18 different financial pots within the European Commission, then it shows you know, that we have to reflect here how to simplify the structure, how to, for example, create a two-stop shop. So if uh, somebody on the local level wants to finance an integration project, he goes to the website and there is a phone number with somebody who can tell you your project is more social inclusion, so you call DG employment. Your project is more pre-integration, so you call DG home. So all this is currently um, being uh, discussed. Second point, um, flexibility. Um, I just give you a very simple example. Um, we are all working currently on the basis of a photograph which was taken back in 2014. Because on the basis of this photograph, the distribution key of the money was agreed between the member states and the European Parliament. The reality in the area of migration and security 
of 2017 has nothing to do anymore with the picture of 2014. And that's why Andlis mentioned that flexibility is very, very important. We need to be in a position to react. Due to this photograph of 2014, we have, for example, for Bulgaria in the area of um, asylum, 10 million euros for seven years, which is nothing. But of course, in 2014, it was not predictable that Bulgaria would become one of the states mostly concerned by the refugee crisis. Um, Having said that, it's also clear that the two co-legislators are very hesitant to provide flexibility, but this will be one of the, one of the big issues. And the third point I wanted to make is uh, sufficient resources, but there I will not, not go further into detail because this will be, of course, um, for, the, for the final uh, negotiations and discussion. But now to your question um, with re regard to the funding issues. What should be funded on the national level? What should be funded on the European level? First point... Um, in a way, we have a mixed system already in the area of, of home affairs because we are working with national programs, and within the national programs, the EU only co-finances. So that means already that, in a way, the member states finance uh, uh, on their side and we contribute. Um, I would say that since in a common asylum system, in a common um, Schengen system, border management, the EU sets minimum standards. The EU expects from member states to establish certain systems, and that's why it's then also absolutely okay to support the member states, and that is also a task of the EU, not least taking into account that the financial um, capability of member states to finance European systems is very different. So the budgetary situation in Germany is a different situation than the budgetary situation in Bulgaria. And that's why we have to take this also into account that we have to have the financial means on the European level to ensure that the border management, which has been agreed now, that the asylum system, which has been agreed now, with minimum standards, with reception conditions, will be established on the national level. And there the money uh, should be there um, and um, must be there. On Schengen... I wouldn't say it was reckless. I would say it was a very conscious political decision which was taken because um, the management of the external borders of a state is for, um, for the national level very close to the core of sovereignty. And that's why uh, the common border system, the common European border system, was on the table several times in the last 15 years, but it was before and always rejected because member states held the opinion, well, this is a question of, of, of sovereignty, so leave us alone, which at the same time means that the headlines in the beginning of 2015, the EU doesn't deliver on the external borders, was entirely wrong because the EU had no competence at the external borders. Now we have uh, the European um, Border and Coast Guard Agency, which has many more competences, but also there... Um, the, um, the readiness of member states in the regulation did not go so far to allow uh, the agency to also support a member state at the external borders without an explicit request to do so. That means, uh, and practice will show that, it is still a rather complex system under the, uh, un, um, until uh, the EU can, can act in this respect. What have we done? I think the hotspots we established in Italy and Greece are success stories. Fingerprinting rates are 
um, above 90% now. And I mentioned to you that uh, apart from the um, um, Frontex um, border agency, we have made now proposal on entry exit system, ATS, interoperability. So there's a lot in the area of borders being done in this respect. Thank you. Okay, I, I see that now uh, two people have actually uh, raised uh, and would like to ask a question. So, so um, per perhaps you first and then, then uh, my colleague Scholt. Mr. Uh, what can we expect of the future of the, the Dublin Accord? Will it be revised, abolished, or just forgotten? Thank you. Yes. So, so that's what, uh, Jolt. Jolt is the second. Is there a third question? And you. Okay. And then, then we close with the questions. And yeah, two, two third questions. One to Manu and one to, to Elizabeth and, and Matthias. So, so Manu, you mentioned that you visited refugee settlement centers in, in Kenya and some other parts where people are living there for, for decades. I just, I just wonder, I mean, that should be so, such a desperate situation. I mean, what solution you, you see for that? Uh, and I mean, I don't ask whether the EU could do anything in, in Kenya, but, but clearly what, what solution would see you that? And for, for Elizabeth and, and Matthias, I would like to more ask about the uh, uh, neighborhood and partnership policies. I mean, Matthias, you mentioned that this is the most complex challenge and, and a complete reshape of development policy policy would be needed. Why, Elizabeth, you said that uh, there's a need for a more forward-looking approach. So, so my question is that, really, what what EU can do? I mean, what can we do to, let's say, make the Middle East, you know, more secure or or prevent this large number of, of crossings? And and what can we do? You, Matthias mentioned, and one factor which encourages further border crossing is a very low number of, of returns. So, what can we do to increase? safe returns to the, to the source countries. Thank you very much. My name is Wolfgang Pape. I'm Associate Perceps, currently working with a group which is called a Duo for Job, where we try as mentors help young immigrants to find a job here. And this is very interesting because it's a very concrete experience we have there. In this context, we discussed as well the principle of double adaption, which apparently in the Canadian model, which was briefly mentioned here that Canada is quite successful in integrating people, means that not only the immigrants are adapting to the local culture, but that local people as well learn foreign languages, not necessarily the language of the immigrants, but to adapt more to cultures they don't know. And from my own experience as a mentor with uh, immigrants, I realized you can learn a lot from their integration, from their problems about your own society as well. Is this a principle that is being used or at all employed here in Europe anywhere, at local level maybe? Thank you. I think we have uh, enough enough to to discuss for another one hour, but uh, let's restrict ourselves to short answers. Perhaps Manu, you So I think at the many of the refugee settlements, uh, it's a complex uh, political situation because oftentimes the folks uh, in these in these camps uh, aren't uh, treated as full citizens as you would as you would suspect, right? Uh, and the government, the host government, uh, isn't often. Uh, willing to uh, really prioritize uh, the livelihood uh, as much as you would hope. Um, 
But uh, the specific settlement in Kenya Dadaab, where, where I visited, uh, was very encouraging because um, they had uh, been able to create a number of what I thought were, were really uh, valuable private sector partnerships where uh, companies were coming in and providing uh, internet access uh, at, at some sort of like engagement model with the, with the government, um, also providing educational services. It was really remarkable how many uh, citizens from Geneva or from the UNHCR or from the UN were there working hard, um, really kind of creating uh, quite, quite a nice uh, livelihood situation, making the best that they could. Um, but I think really the, the dynamic uh, is really trying to have the political will uh, in the host government, uh, wherever the settlement is, to recognize the full citizenship status as much as possible uh, and really prioritize as much as possible the economic and uh, societal well-being of the community of people living there, and then really being open to not only government aid, but also private sector interventions, uh, which can be useful uh, in terms of accelerating the amount of investment and um, really uh, increasing the amount of benefits that the people there enjoy. Thank you for your question. So I now have a litany of questions to answer. Um, I think on your funding question, you know, there are lots of different, it's impossible to talk about the size of the envelope, given the bigger is about as far as I can go, the exact scale, given that some countries are investing very little into things like immigrant integration, and the German government was willing to put 20 billion into its 2018 budget on immigrant integration. You know, we're talking contextually about massive divergences in the political will at national level to invest in some of these areas. What is intriguing is also that at city level and at regional level, there's often more interest in investing in some parts of, of, of migration integration policy than there is at national level. And one of the challenges I think that, that's being considered by the European Commission is in the absence of the willingness of a national government to do some of the things it has to do, what is our ability to encourage greater investment? It's, it's, it's the biggest, you know, the multi-annual programs set up under AMEF were, were, were already a start by asking countries to set out what they intended to do over, over the next few years on migration integration. But the major challenges that were experienced over the last two, three years were capacity challenges. You know, countries that were used to dealing with a couple of hundred asylum claims suddenly having to build makeshift reception centers, even the most developed countries struggling to deal with the numbers that they were dealing with. So we do need to improve baseline capacity. Well, what's the bargain that the EU can make when it comes to funding to say, not only are we going to give you this money, but we're going to find incentives for you to spend it in a way that builds up your migration, asylum, and integration capacity in the long term? That, I think, is the question that is still to be answered because it doesn't matter how big the envelope is if countries aren't going to be capable of using it. And the very basic questions about, you know, where's the money gone in Greece? Well, actually... Greek government doesn't know how to spend it. So there's also a question about, should we be at the point now where the EU has the ability to directly give resources to a country rather than giving money that is then translated into resources? And the reason I'll say this, I'll give you a very quick anecdote. Two countries ordering um, makeshift uh, reception facilities in the midst of the crisis, one small country, one big country, both doing well economically. We're not talking about huge differences. Both northwestern European countries. The head of the reception uh, system in the smaller country complains to me, I just got my order 
pushed to the back of the line because Germany put their order in. <laughs> so you also have compete competition over resources, particularly at scarce moments. So how do you make sure the right resources are getting to the right place at the right time? Um, you know, these, these little anecdotes and these little experiences need to be reviewed to think through how we do that. On Schengen, um, I don't know that it was recklessness, but not explicitly link linking Schengen to asylum responsibility is problematic. Um, but it was built on an assumption that we all have a common understanding and we all agree what our asylum responsibilities are across the original Schengen countries. So perhaps the problem is not Schengen design, but Schengen expansion. Now, two years ago, suggesting that Schengen membership had to change was an extremely controversial thing to say. But if we don't find solutions and find a way to design Schengen where everyone buys in to the common responsibilities that come with the benefits of the Schengen system, we are going to reach a point where I think Schengen has to break. And we have to have serious questions about who, who is member and who is not. And that's, that, I think, is the, the sort of nuclear option that everyone's trying to avoid. But, but we might get there in the next year if nothing else changes. Um, the reason we're not talking about Dublin, and, and the reason I was laughing is because he can't say it, so I can say it, is it's dead. It's not going anywhere. <laughs> the technical, uh, the very technical level, the divergences between EU member states are huge. And at the political level, the divergences between EU member states are huge. Um, I think there are, there are grand bargains out there. Yeah, yeah, but it's, so we continue with what we have, which is contested, <laughs> or we find something else that is equally contested. Um, but, you know, the, the, the sort of the, the basic thrust of a, a lot of the work is, well, we just need to reform Schengen, uh, reform Dublin and everything will be all right. It just, just doesn't seem to be either possible or that it would be the solution. So um, I personally think we have to start looking at, at different answers that are more um, meaty in terms of thinking about giving competences to, to, to EU agencies, which is still, I think, uh, makes people very nervous. Um, I'll, all I'll say on development policy is, is um, there are opportunities to both think about job creation, think about governance, but when you think about all the things that need to be done, it looks remarkably like existing development policy rather than policy to address root causes. And the evidence we have is extremely mixed on what that means for flows. Um, you know, least developed countries have far more limited mobility than, 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 than the middle income or, or countries that are doing better. Most, most, most likely numbers would it, go up as but it also varies, and we also have to bear in mind what the local mobility options are, what the regional mobility options are. And we are so, we're so sort of monomaniacal in thinking about trends towards Europe, we completely underestimate the influence that might be had and positive dynamics within a region. Um, and I think there's more that we can do and say and think about that. But the part that no one can ever admit to is, well, if we can't do anything, then what? That's, that's, that's the thing no one wants to say, um, which is still problematic. And finally, on Geo for a Job, I love, these, I love these initiatives. I particularly love initiatives that have multiplier effects. And you see them across Europe, and I get really excited about them because if you can bring together an integration challenge with, say, an elder care challenge, if you could create mixed housing whereby 
new arrivals were learning language from retired people, but they were also supporting with the care and, and, and uh, community aspect of, of some mixed housing, for example. You know, there are lots of different things we could do. We have a lot of different social problems that range hugely, where the solution is actually something you can find through, through mixed programming. We are so still, I think, convinced that an integration problem has an integration answer, that we're not really thinking about how to, how to bring all those different things together. And I think initiatives like this are really important. I think local authorities are, are really recognizing the opportunities of thinking about housing policy, thinking about education policy, you know, how the school can play a bigger role in community cohesion, all of these things. Well, I think we're at the beginning of a much bigger conversation about that, um, that for me is one of the more exciting things happening in, in the integration landscape. Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, first, thanks to Liz for looking for me into the crystal ball of the European Council on, uh, on, on Dublin. But I will not leave, leave out the question um, entirely. Um, just let me say Dublin was originally a legal instrument which just had the purpose to decide on who is responsible for an asylum procedure. And now we have added in a way a new dimension, i.e. Um, when do we have to act in order to exercise solidarity if a member state who is part of the common European asylum system is no longer able, capable to cope with the problems. And let me just give you one example which, which makes clear that we need solidarity. Greece received in 2015 around 800,000 refugee influx. Greece has one-eighth of the population of Germany. So if you multiply the 800,000 by eight, you would have had more than six million refugees for Germany. And you will all agree that not one administration in the European Union would have been able to cope with this, with, with this number of refugees. And this example shows, if I have a common European asylum system, if I have a Schengen system, I need solidarity. And now the question is, how can we come to a conclusion here? The Commission has, in my opinion, made a very fair proposal taking into account that in the first phase, where there is a lower number of refugees, member states have to do their homework, they have to manage it themselves. But if you come, I will not go into details now, but if you come to a higher influx, then the distribution key or the fairness mechanism shall apply. Um, the discussions currently are, are going a bit into the direction that um, if there is a serious crisis, there should be a compulsory distribution. If there is a less serious crisis, maybe a voluntary contribution. And here I stop and end with a crystal ball. Um, Liz, Liz looked in. It is, it is highly, it is highly, highly political. Uh, second point, um, the neighborhood. Uh, please excuse me that I don't go into, 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 all, the, into all the details uh, now. But clear is, and I think I made that also clear in my introductory statement, we up to now worked rather successfully on the symptoms because we prepared ourselves better within the European Union to cope with influx. But this is not enough to cope with the symptoms. We have to look at the origin, and these are the root causes in Africa and the Middle East. And I already pointed out this is a huge uh, problem. Um, the EU is active in many areas with several DGs in this respect. Uh, we have a trust fund with more than 2 billion euros. Um, but we have to see um, how we 
can better coordinate. And better coordination means better coordinate within the commission. There comes the new funding architecture, etc. Among member states, because member states uh, are not coordinated in this respect. And then between the European Union and the member states. Um, we have to follow an integrated approach because several policy areas are, are concerned. I said we are doing that in the Commission now, um, but member states have to follow. It is, we could have a weekend seminar on that, but we have to start. That is my message. We have to tackle this problem. We cannot say, you know, sorry, uh, this is too big uh, to tackle. So we have to, we have to do it. On the double adaptation, um, I don't know in how far this is being exercised on the local level, but this is one of the issues where I said, you know, we cannot do enough as European Commission, and we made this experience recently in Tallinn, to bring member states together and to just exchange their experience, what they do, and to collect best practices. Uh, we recently had a one-day seminar, and everybody was saying afterwards, I learned a lot, and we should also invite countries like, like Canada uh, to share this practice. Let me finish uh, with, a, with a little picture. Um, if you look at the area of um, migration, policy and asylum migration, you can also take other policy fields. Um, we have sometimes a problem in Europe that we construct nice planes. We watch the planes under the blue sky and they fly perfectly and when the first storm comes, we discover that this plane was not this, this, uh, constructed for stormy situations. And then we start repairing the plane while flying. That has happened now in the area of Schengen, in the area of asylum and migration, we are still repairing the plane while flying, um, but maybe we should also learn the lesson that in future we construct uh, stronger planes from the beginning. Thank you. Well, please join me in uh, thanking all of our speakers for this this debate. I think we could really, as you say, have a have a, a day or two, or you know, a week of uh, discussions around all the different topics. Uh, but okay, this is where we have to end today. So, please join me in thanking. Thank you to all of you uh, for coming today. Thank you.